This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And it is so good to have you along this Monday afternoon on the Country Hour today. And just after half past 12 today, in fact, after the news headlines, you will hear about a a WA grain export company and its freight costs, which have increased 300%, all due to COVID travel restrictions, but it still seems to be making good money. How is that happening? You'll find out after half past 12 today. And also today, the incredible popularity of getting into the honey business, becoming a beekeeper. Is that you? Are you one of the people uh, who just uh, can't resist it and have taken the plunge and got your own hives and set yourself up? Let me know this afternoon. 0448 922 604 if you would like to text through and be part of the conversation this afternoon. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and some big news out of WA's Northern Goldfields today with mining magnate Gina Reinhardt striking a deal to further expand her iron ore empire, which, as you know, already includes the Roy Hill mine in the Pilbara. A subsidiary of Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting will form a new joint venture agreement with the owners of the Mount Bevan project, which is about 100 kilometres west of Leonora. Mount Bevan is owned on a 60-40 basis by Perth-based Legacy Iron Ore and Melbourne-based Hawthorne Resources. Hawthorne's Managing Director, Mark Kerr, says it's an asset that's suddenly become very popular. It has been an asset that has sat around as the various parties have looked at it, but what's come into um, into focus now is that these steel mills in, in Asia need not so much of the direct shipping ore, they're they're a lot more interested in in magnetite, which is you know needs to be processed at site and then um, put on a ship and go to market. So there's a bit of a change in the iron ore industry to get things that are um, more acceptable for keeping greenhouse emissions down. So we're lucky from that point of view. Interesting to note that Juno Resources. We share a boundary with that company, which is an ASX-listed company, and they have a hematite project that they are trying to bring to market at the same time. So the area, we actually share a little bit of that hematite deposit also. So we've got a little bit of a hematite and, as you point out, a lot of magnetite. And we have not drilled out all of our large tenements. We've only drilled out... Most of it. So there's a, there's more magnetite to be discovered, we believe, and the area is coming under a lot more attention at the moment with the changing focus from Asia. Mark, how significant uh, is it getting a, a someone of Miss Reinhardt's ilk uh, on board with a project like this? Obviously, she's uh, been involved in the development of like the Roy Hill mine in the Pilbara. So it's um, big financial muscle for you to, to get this project moving. Look, we're, we're delighted to be sit alongside Hancock Prospecting. They've got the credentials. They've got the way to get this deposit 
to port and and sold. We've liked how they've dealt with our joint venture. So there's some very good synergies. Uh, We've got the deposit that we share with Legacy and we think that Hancock Prospecting and, and Atlas, which is part of their group, would be ideal partners. So we're looking forward to executing the joint venture agreement, which will take a little bit of time, but uh, we should hopefully do that around Christmas or just after and getting on with the what's called a pre-feasibility study, which um, Hancock will fund, and that's how they get their interest up to 51%. Can you reveal how long these sort of negotiations have been underway in the background? been a significant amount of time there have been various discussions with people it, it just hasn't happened in the last three months there's been a fair bit of dd due diligence done over the journey so it validates you know our belief in the in our high quality joint venture asset at the moment um you know it's a it's a quality project and it just remains to be um to be properly exploited Mark Kerr from Hawthorne Resources speaking to Jared Lucas about how his company has struck a deal with Gina Reinhart's Hancock Prospecting to progress the Mount Bevan iron ore project in the Northern Goldfields. 10 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, there were some bushfires in different parts of the state yesterday and today there are some bushfires in the Broome Shire and in the Shire of Derby West Kimberley. Now, they are at advice level. So, in other words, that means there is no immediate danger. But if you are in that area, you do need to keep up to date in case the situation changes. But when it comes to fighting fires, Member for Roe, Peter Rundle, is calling on the state government to address growing concerns around the consequences of the Work, Health and Safety Act 2021, which is expected to be law in January. Volunteer bushfire officers and regional shires are worried the threat of jail or large fines under the new workplace legislation could see fewer people volunteering to fight fires in rural areas this summer. Peter Rundle used a grievance in Parliament to ask the Minister for Emergency Services just to provide clarity around the chain of responsibility and the liability at each level when there is a fire. Minister, as you know, the fire season is well underway. Harvest has begun with most farmers working around the clock. There are heavy fuel loads across regional areas due to high winter rainfall. People are worried, and we're worried they won't turn up if there is a fire. We don't want people not turning up to a fire because the Minister and his department has not provided clarity. And I can only emphasise that, Minister, when our farmers see smoke, automatically they go and turn up to that fire and we do not um, want them having second thoughts of fire at their neighbour's place or someone down the road. This is so important. Well, Peter Runder was happy to hear the Minister for Emergency Services provide some clarity for those volunteer firefighters. It is not expected 
It is not expected that Shire CEO's responsibilities for volunteers will vary compared with the current obligations under the current Act. Now, turning to the member's point about who is ultimately responsible for the safety of a volunteer, the Act doesn't impact or change this. Now, turning to the member's points on volunteering Chuck becoming Table. financially responsible or imprisoned under the new Act, workers, which include volunteers, cannot cannot be charged under the industrial manslaughter laws in section 30A of the Work and Health and Safety Act 2020. Only a person conducting a business or undertaking that's at PCBU or an officer of the PCBU may be changed. A PCBU is the main duty holder under the Act. A volunteer organisation is a PCBU if it employs one or more paid workers. A bushfire brigade volunteer is not considered a PCBU. A worker is a person who carries out work for a PCBU in any capacity, including as a volunteer. For a prosecution or charge, all five of the following, following criteria must be proven beyond reasonable doubt. The person had a health and safety duty as a PCBU and the person engages in conduct that causes the death of an individual and the conduct constitutes a failure to comply with the person's health and safety duty, and the person engages in the conduct knowing that the conduct is likely to cause the death or serious harm to an individual, and the person, is, person disregarded the likelihood that the conduct is likely to cause the death or serious harm to an individual. It's a very, very high bar, and you would knowingly be sending people to their certain death in order to be uh, prosecuted. For an officer, it must be proven that the PCBU's conduct was due to an officer's neglect or with the officer's consent or connivance. Now, in regard to gross negligence, Section 18A of the current Health and Safety Act has a similar provision. Members, the test for the highest penalty, gross negligence, that exists in the current legislation is essentially the same as this Act. However, the difference is the penalty increases to industrial manslaughter. Officers of a PCBU who are not volunteers can be prosecuted for failing to comply with due diligence duties. A volunteer officer of a PCBU cannot be prosecuted for failing to comply with their officer duties under the Act. This immunity for volunteer officers is designed to ensure that voluntary participation at the officer level is not discouraged. A volunteer officer can be prosecuted in their capacity as a worker if they do not take responsible care as a worker. Now, I've met hundreds of emergency service volunteers throughout the state who understand that the work they perform is dangerous and they take their health and safety seriously. Uh, turning to the issue about firefighters and attendance at fires and retention of volunteers. Volunteer attendance has not been impacted by the introduction of the same legislation in eastern states where it's been enforced for almost 10 years. If there are safe systems of work for volunteers, the commencement of the new legislation next year will have little to no impact. In finishing, I thank the member for your advocacy for your volunteers. It is important that volunteers feel protected, and that is exactly what the government is doing. Minister for Emergency Services, Rhys Whitby. Well, the member for Roe, Peter Rundle, did thank the minister for addressing some of his queries, particularly around the volunteers, but says the government must also provide clear information to local governments and to farmers on what their liability is during a fire.
16 past 12. And the WA Health Minister, Roger Cook, has defended the government's decision to include volunteer emergency workers, such as firefighters, under its mandatory coronavirus vaccination policy. Vaccinations will become mandatory for around 75% of the state's workforce. Those in high-risk occupations, such as police and Department of Fire and Emergency Service workers, require both jabs by the end of the year. Initially, emergency service volunteers were not included, but the minister now says they form part of the second group requiring full vaccination. The volunteers will be captured under that group two, which was, means they need to be uh, vaccinated uh, first dose by 31 December, second dose by 31 January. Obviously, volunteers interact with professional firefighters and um, rescue workers, so it's important that they too are covered under these arrangements. 17 past 12. Well, meanwhile, Federal Member for O'Connor, Rick Wilson, says it's completely unreasonable for farmers to be included in the WA government's vaccine mandate. Workers in critical primary industries are listed in Group 3 under the state government's mandatory vaccination measure, which means they have to be fully vaccinated in the event of a lockdown or similar restrictions. Rick Wilson says mandatory vaccination for high-risk workplaces makes perfect sense, but questions whether farming really needs to be included. I think it depends from industry to industry. So the Commonwealth Government has uh, mandated uh, vaccination for people who work in aged care facilities, and I think that's in quite, in, entirely uh, legitimate. I mean, you know, if you, if you brought COVID into one of those facilities, you could uh, ultimately, you know, lead to the deaths of many of the people in that facility. If you're a farmer and you're working, uh, you know, out in the paddock and on a chaser bin or on a header, you're very little risk uh, to anybody and I think that it's completely unreasonable, for example, that farmers uh, are part of that mandated vaccine uh, program by the WA government and, you know, come the 31st of January they'll receive, you know, some serious fines if they continue to employ uh, workers who uh, are not vaccinated. Okay, so you would support them not being vaccinated uh, under the mandate if, they, if that was their choice? What, what I'm supporting is people's right to choose uh, and not be punished with the loss of their livelihood and employment. I mean, I think, uh, as I say, uh, in, in uh, some sectors and some industries, and certainly the health sector and the aged care sector, it's, it's entirely justified. In a sector like farming, I absolutely don't think it is. And I think uh, uh, it's heavy-handed and over the top and... and I've had a trucking contractor who employs 60 drivers uh, who says, you know, somewhere between three and five of those uh, drivers are going to choose not to get vaccinated. Uh, He'll have to let them go on the 31st of January, Uh, but he's already 10 drivers short, so he's not going to be able to replace those five. It just means another five uh, drivers uh, short. And so the supply chain constraints that we're already seeing because of COVID and travel restrictions and other issues are only going to get worse. So I I think it's a huge issue coming up for this state. Other states like New South Wales, uh, you know, haven't been quite so heavy-handed with their their vaccine mandates and uh, and they seem to be achieving very, very high uh, vaccination rates without the uh, without the stick approach. And um, uh, obviously with, with community transmission of vaccine, uh, of, of COVID in, in New South Wales, there's a much greater incentive for uh, people to get uh, vaccinated. But it just shows that people will, will go and get the vaccination where they feel it's necessary for their health. Federal Member for O'Connor, Rick Wilson with Tim Wong-See. 
20 past 12. And on the text, Jack in Manjimup says, since Labor has taken our water rights and destroyed our native timber industry, I sadly won't be volunteering to fight fires anymore. Have your say on the text too. It is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Just before the news headlines at half past twelve today, uh, heading over to the eastern states, there has been some rain about over the weekend, and checking in there just to see how that is affecting the grain harvest on the eastern side of the country. First, though, the strong commodity prices that you've been hearing about this year have been reflected in the financial year results of one of Australia's biggest agribusinesses. Elders has today unveiled its end-of-year results, reporting a statutory net profit after tax of almost $150 million. Elders CEO Mark Allison says the strong market conditions only tell a small part of the overall result. It really only accounts for 30% of the growth uh, year on year, the strong market conditions and seasons and commodity prices. And there's been uh, 70% has come from other self-help initiatives that the business has in place. So so we're seeing um, continued growth, a, a continued ability to reinvest in regional rural Australia and to, uh, you know, Elders has been uh, in Australia now for 182 years. Uh, our core DNA is regional rural Australia and agriculture and uh, and we're, we're, you know, we feel happy that we can uh, contribute more as we grow more. So of those seasonal conditions, I imagine it's things like we've talked quite a bit about high livestock prices but also high rural real estate prices? Yeah, no, they've been very strong. Uh, I think starting on real estate, uh, our sense, particularly in the farmland sector, which is the bigger the bigger holding sector, but we, we thought with the reduction of uh, Chinese capital coming into that market that we may see a softening. Uh, but uh, with local family money and also... Uh, Canadian super funds, there's been significant investment and competition there. On the livestock prices, for us, high livestock prices is good for our uh, agency business and uh, that's uh, that's been moving along strongly and it's uh, not so good for our feed and processing business, which has uh, had, its, had its profitability halved through that same period. So one of the beauties of Elder's business model is that we have multiple diversifications and uh, through geographies, crop segments, species, channel, uh, access channel to market, and that allows us to be able to uh, offset like uh, hardcore seasonal or uh, or commodity cycle in, uh, impacts. On the real estate side of things, we've heard for a couple of years now, and this is by no means exclusive to elders, but a Canadian super really has shown a lot of interest in Australian agriculture. Would you like to see yeah. Australian super showing more interest in, in agriculture? Absolutely, completely agree with you. I mean, I, I'm chair of Agribusiness Australia as another role, and uh, the Future Fund doesn't tend to invest in uh, in agriculture in Australia. And you know, from a regional rural, rural Australian viewpoint, and from an agricultural viewpoint, it just makes sense because uh, you know we have our farm gate uh, pre-farm gate target of producing $100 billion by 2030. We're back to $70 billion this year, so we're back on track with that. And, and this is a, a significant growth area and an important industry for Australia in the export market. Is it a bit of a double-edged sword yeah, for the real estate side of things on a, on a much more local level in, in that you know if you own property and you've seen that value rise, great when you're selling, but if you're a younger person trying to get in, it's a bit like buying a house in Sydney or Melbourne. You're getting priced out. 
Yeah, it's very, very difficult in the uh, in the, uh, the capital cities, but also the uh, big regional cities. But we've seen a strengthening in our uh, uh, in our regional rural, uh, uh, oh, sorry, residential business, and there may be a drift occurring, as I think a lot of people have predicted, from uh, from city areas into uh, more uh, regional areas. But but you're right, it's it's just very, very difficult. I mean, how uh, how a young couple can afford to invest in a property in a major city is, uh, is very, very difficult. You touched too on input prices uh, and fertiliser has been one that's been talked about quite a lot, that a number of nations are cutting back how much fertiliser that they're exporting. Is that an, an area of concern to you, that, that, that fertilisers may be just getting too expensive to justify for farmers? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because uh, both Russia and China have held back production, some of their production for their domestic use, uh, you know, which, which they have a, a right, a sovereign right to do. Um, I, I think the issue coming into next year's winter crop and also in northern Australia, the summer crop that's coming in now, is around having the volume commitments. And from Aldous' viewpoint, with uh, in East Coast, so Western Australia, we're comfortable with how uh, the volume commitments there. Uh, for Eastern Australia, we've got a few supplies, but I think locking in the volume is the critical point. And then, uh, because prices have been going up significantly with uh, with the pressure on uh, production around the world and, and volumes being withdrawn from the market, as you said, uh, is uh, I think the price issue will be a, a later issue as we come closer into uh, the season. And how hopeful are you more broadly that the good times in agriculture will continue? We've seen some positive forecasts, but at the same time, uh, recent storms uh, have been welcomed in some areas, but seem to have done quite a bit of damage in others. Are you hopeful for the, the short term for agriculture? Oh, I'm very, very optimistic. There have been some uh, rain recently in the last week that's upset some of the harvesting and damaged some crops and reduced yield, etc. Uh, that goes part and parcel with agriculture. It doesn't feel like it's widespread, but obviously for those that are impacted, it's uh, significant. I, I think the outlook uh, for at least the next 18 months, two years for Australian agriculture is very, very strong. One of the clouds on the horizon uh, has been uh, access to overseas markets and the potential uh, of uh, not being able to uh, sell the product we produce. I think we've shown uh, with the China tensions that we've been able to find alternative markets in a number of areas. It's really only the crayfish uh, industry in Western Australia that hasn't been, but they were quite leveraged to China with 90% plus going to China. But, but uh, I think other markets have opened up. We've got our strong Indonesian markets. We've got ASEAN, the comprehensive agreement that was announced last week. We've got a free trade agreement with India being negotiated at the moment. The same with the UK and the EU. So uh, I, I, I actually feel very optimistic about it. Elders CEO Mark Allison with Nikolai Bailhartz and just repeating that net profit after tax for elders of almost $150 million. 27 past 12 and Mark Allison was just talking about the rain in recent times. There certainly has been a lot of rain in the eastern states just in the last week or so. For example, in Victoria's Gippsland region, there's minor flooding along the Mitchell River about Bairnsdale and the New South Wales central west town of Forbes is preparing for floods over the next few days. Grain traders are watching the situation very closely. Andrew Woodhouse is the Managing Director of Advanced Grain Trading and says there are now a lot of soggy paddocks in Queensland and New South Wales. You know, it's a big area up there and, uh, and I'm hearing some uh, reasonable damage uh, further north we go up around that Moree area but uh, hence uh, Rain uh, events there uh, over the last sort of uh, five to five days or a week. There's certainly got water everywhere, so there will be damage up there. There's no doubt about that. But 
I think the further you go south um, into the central uh, west region, uh, it's very patchy. And, uh, and ultimately, they did get some uh, good rainfall down there, but uh, probably not as much as first anticipated by the weather forecasters. But, uh, yeah, again, patchy down there, and, uh, and, and I'm hearing uh, reports that uh, some of the farmers are going to get back into the um, harvest uh, uh, mid-morning, uh, late morning. And, uh, but there is a bit of uh, a change in the colour of the crops, uh, little black uh, tips and what have you, but uh, the, the reality is bit early to suggest that there's going to be widespread damage in regards to the, uh, the crops. So test rates might be threatened, but uh, we'll have to just wait and see. Andrew Woodhouse from Advanced Grain Trading, 28 past 12, and deliveries are virtually ground to a halt at Grain Corp sites across the eastern states. The company has received little more than 250,000 tonnes since last Monday and is more than 2 million tonnes down on the same time last year. Nigel Lotz manages operations for Grain Corp. Yeah, look, obviously in New South Wales in particular, it's been a, a bit of a steady week with the, with the weather events we had. Uh, it's difficult to understand yet, uh, and we'll find out more through the course of this week, what effect it's had on quality, but you know, it, it's a stop-start harvest and it's going to be more of the same. Um, in the north, you know, Queensland had a good run early, and over this past two weeks it's been a little bit stop-start. In terms of the yeah quality, like well, it's just so early to predict. And I suppose the positives are is that yeah, it is a later harvest than normal. If you look at you know year on year, last year was you know, particularly early, so we had a huge amount more grain in the bin by then. So uh, that will play to our hand, I suppose, in terms of minimising the effect on the quality. But look, yeah, where we're at, you know, year on year, I, I suppose for me, I look at Victoria, for instance. Um, you know, normally now the northwest of Victoria would be well and truly underway, and it's not. Uh, they're probably two weeks behind, so that's probably a bit untraditional. But you know, more of the eastern areas, you know, it, it's it's more like you know, normal, I suppose. A bit delayed. Uh, the weather, like I said, hopefully won't have as bad an impact because there's there's a lot of green crops. Um, last week, even I was up through to parks, um, jumped over the fence in a few paddocks, and you know, everything was very very soft and milky. So um, yeah, hoping that that the weather will you know, not cause too much harm. Nigel Lotz, he's the General Manager of Operations at Grain Corp, the big East Coast grain handler, catching up with Angus Verley. And back here in Western Australia, the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has also had a few um, rainfall events to interrupt things and slow down the rate of harvest deliveries. 1.8 million tonnes was received through the system uh, throughout the week, up until this morning, and it takes the total deliveries to 3.8 million tonnes here in Western Australia. And if you are a grain grower, don't go anywhere because just after the weather, you're going to hear how the WA-based premium grain handlers company is coping with COVID times because some of its costs have dramatically increased. Yeah, overall, the weighted average increase in freight costs for our business is around 300% um, on the markets we go to. And it's by far the biggest headwind on our business is the availability of containers and the increase in freight. You'll hear more from Jackson Morris shortly. It's um, not a story of woe by any stretch, far from it in fact. He is very positive about the current situation and thinks things are looking pretty good for oat growers in particular. 
28 to 1. Jessica Warriner is here. What's making the headlines, Jessica? Good afternoon. The WA Premier says no decision has been made on quarantine arrangements for the Ashes cricket test in Perth after reports players could enter the state and have a five-day isolation period. The state is planning to drop its hard border in late January or early February. An exact date is due to be set once 80% of the population aged over 12 is fully vaccinated. Mr McGowan has dismissed the Federal Health Minister's suggestion. WA may reopen earlier to coincide with the Perth test, due to start on January the 14th. Mining magnate Gina Reinhart has struck a deal to buy into an iron ore project in WA's northern goldfields, further expanding her ore empire, which includes the Roy Hill mine in the Pilbara. A subsidiary of Ms Reinhart's Hancock Pro Prospecting will form a joint venture agreement with the owners of the Mount Bevan project west of Leonora. And a Swiss great Roger Federer is set to miss January's Australian Open. Federer is recovering from knee surgery and his coach, Ivan Lubacic, says the 40-year-old does not bounce back from injury as quickly as before. More news at one. Thank you for that, Jessica. Appreciate it. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And as Jessica was just telling you about the Gina Reinhardt uh, deal, striking a deal to further expand her iron ore empire, uh, you can read more about that on the ABC website and there is a link to it on the ABC Rural Facebook page. A few comments on the story too on the Facebook page. Jade says, good on you, Gina. Kicking goals, digging holes. And Bob says, time she invested in a steel mill instead of shipping offshore. Check it out on the ABC Rural Facebook page. You are tuned to the Country Hour and still to come between now and the news at one, off to Mushave for the results of the cattle market and the incredible popularity of beekeeping here in Western Australia. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now and a catch-up with Noel Pusey this afternoon. How's it looking around the Southwest Land Division, Noel? Um, hi, yeah, Belinda. It's, um, it's not too bad over most parts at the moment. Uh, a little bit of cloud over the eastern goldfields and southeast coastal district there, and there is a chance perhaps of a, a brief shower or storm there this afternoon and evening, but a uh, very deep trough lying down through central parts of the state uh, through the Southwest Land Division. That eastern side of that trough is... Quite warm with uh, fresh gusty northerly winds through there and uh, yeah, the, the chance of that thunderstorm activity there. But uh, to the west, cool change after a lovely weekend here in Perth and uh, sort of 24 degrees at Perth and sort of cool temps right along the west coast and the south coast. And uh, that uh, the trough will move slowly east over the next couple of days and uh, bring further showers and storms uh, again tomorrow afternoon and evening, perhaps a little bit more um, extensive through the goldfields and southeast coastal districts. But Esperance is about the... Um, the boundary of the storms as far west as they go anyway for, for Tuesday. Um, they, they do return again on Thursday, trough a little bit further east, but um, thunderstorm activity starting to develop uh, through the goldfields and the um, inland parts of the Gascoigne and extending, extending south uh, through central and eastern parts of the southwest land division sort of Thursday during the day and then perhaps along the south coast as well in the afternoon and evening. So even the great southern and the south coastal district could pick up some some sort of rainfall out of that uh, as well. So a little bit of um, more rainfall to interrupt um, sort of harvesting uh, activity through, through that potentially on Thursday night into Friday and the possibility of sort of 20 to 30 millimetre falls, particularly over the southeast coastal district and adjacent parts of the Great Southern and the South Coastal District. Um, hopefully, I know it's going to interrupt uh, people there, but I'm hoping that uh, they can get some stuff done before then, uh, and it is going to be, a, be an issue that'll that'll uh, 
not go away in the near future, I think, but it does clear up after that, I think, and uh, we get back into some more normal sort of weather, sort of Friday and the weekend as things start to uh, start to uh, look a bit bit healthier in the, in the way of uh, less rainfall and slightly warmer conditions as well. And how are conditions in other parts of the state then, looking into the north and eastern parts, Noel? Well, it's it's um, quite dry in the north at the moment, perhaps one or two showers of storms in the far um, northwest. Uh, Kimberley Coast this afternoon and evening, the Curie Bay sort of way through there, but otherwise uh, fairly dry and uh, quite warm. Uh, some some uh, near, near um, high temp record sort of stuff through the North Kimberley for the next day or two and remains fairly dry in the north. Um, showers and storms uh, through the interior on Thursday and into Friday as well, but otherwise most of the Pilbury looks pretty good, uh, And but those inland storms through the Gascoigne as well developing later in the week. Any warnings this afternoon? Uh, we've got uh, strong wind warnings to coastal waters uh, all the way from Cape Lewin to the South Australian border for today. Fairly extensive area of fire, fire weather through the uh, the Pilbara down into the eastern Gascoigne and uh, severe fire dangers there and also through northern parts of the interior too. Thank you, Noel. Appreciate that. And on a Monday, always having a look back at the weekend rainfall results. So basically from 9 o'clock Friday until 9 o'clock this morning and there's not much to tell. Nowhere in Western Australia received more than three millimetres of rain and that fell at Cranbrook in the Great Southern. 23 to 1. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. A Western Australian grain export company's freight costs have increased 300% due to COVID travel restrictions but it still seems to be making good money. Premium Grain Handlers specialises in niche markets exporting oats, wheat, barley and pulses in containers. The company's acquisition manager, Jackson Morris, says the freight cost situation has forced them into looking at new but lucrative markets. So if you look at oats as an example, one of the destinations we're sending oats to is India, the beginning of the year, oats were the freight was about eighteen hundred dollars per container, and now you're probably paying around seven to eight thousand dollars a container, and the cost of the goods is probably only about six thousand dollars or thereabouts. So, what does that mean? Do you have to change where you're sending the oats, or how do you tweak things? Yeah, we have to look at different destinations um, and and probably market our Australian oats in, in different ways as well. So whether that's uh, the, the burgeoning oat milk market into Asia or uh, also you know looking at domestic homes as well. That sounds exciting. The oat milk market in the world, what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's exponentially growing. So if you look at Oatly, which listed on the New York Stock Exchange uh, earlier in the year, they're planning to build an oat mill and an oat milk facility in uh, Singapore to access that Asian market. We've got lots of demand domestically here for oat milk as well, and yeah, it's certainly a, uh, very got a very bright future ahead of it. So, do you think demand for Western Australian grown oats is going to increase? Yeah, we do. Yep, for sure. It's 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 a good time to be an oat grower. Does it mean they'll be getting paid more? Do you think? At the moment, prices are fairly firm given the poor crop in Canada. And that looks like it's going to continue. Uh, the Canadian crop has basically been completely exhausted. So there's going to be a few, hopefully, a few good years of you know, firm prices. Just getting back to the other factor that's affecting your business, the shortage of containers, how serious is that problem? It's the, the biggest headwind, headwind on, our, on our business. 
some areas you can't even get containers into. Some shipping lines are refusing to allow you to have bookings into those markets because they're either full of containers at the desti- destination or they want those containers back in China. So if you look at uh, destinations like Egypt, uh, the Middle East in terms of Jebel Ali, the Indian subcontinent, almost impossible to get container access there until the first quarter of next year. And when you do, the freight is astronomical compared to what it normally would be. As of last week, I think there's 102 or 104 vessels that are sitting off the port of LA waiting to be discharged. And that's really where the issue is, is that uh, you've got all these vessels sitting offshore, not doing anything. And because of that, there's a lack of containers around the world globally because they're all sitting idle waiting to be discharged. Do you chat to other companies that deal in containers and are you trying to come to a resolution beyond the grain industry? It's it's a widespread problem. And you're seeing probably more customers as well looking at bulk options. Internationally, I think you look at companies like Coca-Cola, they're now not even using containers. They're actually shipping their cargo in sacks in bulk vessels. That's what I was thinking. People will be coming up with new ideas. Can you switch to bulk? Look, uh, a lot of the products we deal with in Western Australia probably aren't as easy to export in bulk. There's a, there'd be an increased costs and it's a, a lot harder. So oats definitely will go out in bulk. Uh, wheat and barley will, and canola will continue to go out in bulk. But also you've got an added headwind of such a large season this year that there's really not going to be the capacity to add these niche products onto the shipping stem. Uh, you might see a faber bean vessel come out of Esperance or a pea vessel come out of Esperance, but probably unlikely given the amount of wheat and barley and canola that's going to be going out. Do you think that problem is going to influence farmers? Are they going to say, okay, next planting, I'm not going to put in any faber beans, for instance? That's an interesting question. The other thing to look at is the high fertiliser prices. And actually, the area sown to pulses in Western Australia continues to increase. So I think rather than see growers plant less pulses, you might see them increase the amount of pulses they grow and have companies like ours potentially invest in value-added facilities um, to provide, you know, different markets or, um, you know, a further reason uh, to grow pulses in Western Australia. Now, you export to China as well, don't you? Yeah, that's correct, yep. What's your reading of what's going on there? Because I hear a lot of our containers are being inspected now. Yeah, that's correct. There's obviously a lot of political dialogue between the two countries, and I think it's impacting the agriculture, the Australian agriculture sector as a whole, uh, quite strongly. So previously, uh, the Chinese were consistently inspecting maybe one out of every 20 containers that we um, shipped up, and and now we're seeing every single container of every single consignment being checked for uh, weed seeds and pests. Are they doing that to every container from every country, or is, is Australia being targeted here? Uh, We're certainly seeing more surveillance we understand on Australian Australian products. Any idea why? Uh, They're concerned about weed seeds entering their country from Australia. (laughs) Or are they using it as an excuse, do you think? Because we do... We're in the middle of a trade dispute with China, aren't we? I certainly think that the uh, political dialogue is not helping Australian agriculture. Mm. It's fueling the fire and Australian farmers, Australian traders, um, Australian exporters, are, you know, we're bearing the brunt of it. How nervous are you for some of the things that you're trying to send to China? Uh, uh, suddenly just getting a notification to say we found a weed seed and bang, stopping. 
it's a big concern. And you know, historically over the last five years, we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen with barley, wine, uh, rock lobsters. Um, we do everything we can. We we uh, abide by all the rules. You know, from an Australian point of view, from a Chinese point of view, to ensure that our the the products that we export into China are of the highest uh, quality and the highest expectations. Now, I understand China introduced a, a permit system of some sort about six months ago. What, what's the story there and how's it affecting companies like yours? Yep, so the Chinese government uh, has introduced a permit system and it's a, it's a global permit for anyone that is sending food goods into China and you have to be registered uh, by the 1st of January. And um, we're not seeing a huge amount of communication between the Australian government and the Chinese uh, counterparts in regards to whether we are registered or not, or not registered. It's, uh, it's probably one of the main risks of trading into China at the moment. Do you think it could be used as a gate that they can swing open and shut that permit system? Of course. I mean, but Australia, you know, is supplying a large amount of uh, wheat into China. You know, we're supplying a large amount of oats into China and, and they prefer our product over other, over other nations. So we'd hope that that wouldn't happen. And uh, our customers in, in China, you know, enjoy West Australian, in particular West Australian oats, because of their quality. Mm. And because they're a food product and for human consumption, you know, we're hoping that everything will go smoothly. The China beer producers preferred our barley, though, didn't they? <laughs> that's true, that's true, yeah, they did. But, you know, they've been able to substitute that with uh, French barley and Australian barley has found other markets as well. Yeah. With all of these issues that are going on, how are things going overall? Yeah, overall, you know, West Australian farmers are in, in the box seat. Our grain is some of the most competitive in the world. We've got, you know, very high prices. Uh, the headwind at the moment is logistics around the world and in particular in Western Australia, whether it's getting a truck driver, um, you know, whether it's getting bulk vessels in, whether it's getting containers. Uh, the supply chain crisis, if you want to call it that, is, is real. Even though it's real, are you guys still making pretty good money? Yeah, our, our business is uh, fairly strong on the back of competitive Australian grain. So uh, whilst Australian grain is in you know, firm demand, you know, we'll, we'll, our business will stay strong. Jackson Morris, who manages acquisitions and domestic trading for premium grain handlers. He was speaking to Richard Hudson about how its freight costs have increased by as much as 300%. Uh, But despite that, things are going pretty well. This is the Country Hour and it's 14 to 1. The number of beekeepers in Western Australia is on the rise. In fact, there's almost 700% more apiarists registered with the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development than there were a decade ago. Commercial and amateur beekeepers are really happy about the increase, but want newcomers to be aware of their responsibilities to maintain good hive health and safeguard the honey sector. Jessica Hayes with this report. Ten years ago, there were just 582 registered beekeepers in WA. Today, there's almost seven times more than that. Newcomer Julie Dinsdale is just one of the thousands drawn to beekeeping in recent years. We've got some land up in Mundaring, about five acres, and we had planted an orchard and veggie patch. So I got interested in getting the bees just to pollinate the orchard and uh, just found them fascinating. And um, the rest is history. I went from uh, being a hobby beekeeper to, to now commercial beekeeper. For Julie, it all started when she decided it was time for a change of scenery. <laughs> I was in uh, the corporate world, in IT actually, 
And yeah, I re- really loved it. But when I left after 20 years, it was time to just see what else I could do. I did consulting for a while and the bees just took a natural course for me. As I said, they're fascinating, good for the environment, help us to slow down and have an appreciation of our footprint. Um, on this earth. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but a lot of the skills that I learned in the corporate world uh, certainly come into play now and give confidence to both my husband and I in growing this business. So where are you selling to overseas? We were selling to Korea, to Singapore and also Japan. In the last decade, the number of registered apiarists in WA has jumped by 688%. We are seeing everybody into the industry. We're seeing lawyers and doctors and we're seeing, you know, tradies. It's very broad spectrum of uh, people who just have always had an interest in bees and beekeeping. Yeah, people have just, you know, wanted to get involved and obviously by those numbers they have. That's WA Bee Industry Council Chairman Brendan Fuster. He says the sector has become more accessible and that's the key driver behind the massive increase in new entrants. I think the initial explosion of beekeepers happened when the, uh, the flow hive came out. The flow hive sort of brought a bit of a you know, good press to, towards the beekeeping industry. Uh, looked nice and easy for your average person who was always looking for a beehive. It made it easier for them to access these things. And, and now that people are le- learning a lot more about the bees, you know, we, we, we're having a big influx of, of new beekeepers because people, it, it's quite an interesting job. He reckons the increased interest is incredible. Not too many other industries would even be, have, would have, you know, come close to that. So it has been, it's been great for us. And the more people that are getting involved, the more our messages are getting out there. You know, it's people are talking about bees and talking about what we do and how we do it. And, you know, it's a, it's a great time for us. A lot of these entrants will be backyard beekeepers, of course, but commercial as well, There's there's been a bit of an increase. I mean, what does that mean for industry? Yeah, look, we've sort of had a, a downward turn over, you know, probably 15, 20 years ago. We had quite a few commercial beekeepers we dropped off and now we're just starting to pick that number back up. The state can handle, you know, quite a few beekeepers, quite a few commercial beekeepers and we're probably getting back to where we can sustain quite comfortably where the the number is is at the moment. But with the pollination side of, of beekeeping becoming so important, you know, with the, the more commercial beekeepers we can have, the more bees we can get into uh, securing those food sources like the avocados and the almonds and, and the likes, we really need to get as many beekeepers on the ground as we can. But with more, less experienced entrants, there's also some risk. The WA Apiarist Society represents amateur beekeepers and President Stephen Boylan says everyone must ensure they're properly educated about their responsibilities to themselves and the broader industry. Well, it's essential they know, first of all, about how to look after themselves and where to place an apiary site so they're thinking of the the impact on the people around them and on any livestock. And in terms of biosecurity, it's just so important for them to appreciate that they're part of a bigger industry and the steps that they can take to ensure that their own hive is, is healthy and to benefit everybody else. But as part of that coming together, to be a beekeeper with other beekeepers and not operate in isolation. WA Apris Society President Stephen Boylan ending that report from Jessica Hayes. And if you want to read more on that story, just search ABC Rural Beekeeping Numbers. And you can also find a link on the ABC Southwest Facebook page. Nine to one. Well, people get into the beekeeping business for all different sorts of reasons, but it was the calming effect 
of watching a hive and the bees just going about their business that inspired Air Force veteran Mark Webb to get into the industry. He found the healing power of bees really helped him process the trauma of an incident in Afghanistan in 2015 that seriously injured his back. Mark Webb says his fascination with bees started from the view just outside his lounge room window. Where I was sitting watching television, I could see the beehive out the window um, and I was watching the bees come and go from the hive and I found myself really relaxing watching them. I found found myself feeling, for lack of a better term, better. I didn't know that I wasn't feeling well, but I was feeling better by watching the bees. Having come home from Afghanistan, um, I was seeing a psychologist and I I spoke to the psychologist about that and uh, he referenced it as being a thing called mindfulness Um, and it was that mindfulness that we then sort of started to delve into that a bit more Um, and I got more and more involved in the hive and it was from there I took over it was no longer my wife's hive and meant I had to buy another one Um, and from there we're at where we are today you know managing over 100 hives uh, across Adelaide Hills and the Flurio. Mark was eventually discharged from the Defence Force in 2019 due to his physical injuries and the family moved to a four hectare farm in the Adelaide Hills. Just four months after moving in, the December Cudley Creek bushfire destroyed 90% of the Webb's property, including their home and beekeeping gear. Almost two years on, they're slowly rebuilding, and Mark and his wife, Rianne, are helping to start Hives for Heroes in Australia, a beekeeping mentor program for veterans and first responders founded in America three years ago. Because I found it by accident, I didn't think that it was fair that others, by chance, perhaps accidentally find it when I thought... Perhaps it was better that I'd make it available to them. You know, you've got your sports out there with the Invictus Games, and for some people that's a fantastic option. For me, uh, with my back injury, uh, that's not really an option for me. Uh, and, and in fact, a lot of people with PTS, perhaps a sport isn't a good idea, uh, particularly uh, when you're talking about contact sports, but PTS isn't a good option. And then you've got your men's sheds, uh, and, and, you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, beekeeping's a lot more of a solitary or a one-on-one option, and for those who don't like big crowds beekeeping is a really really good option for them part of beekeeping itself ensures that the veteran or emergency service personnel who come on board have something to look forward to and that really helps with mental health with beekeeping you're always planning ahead you're always planning for the next season you're planning for the next uh, hive management check you're planning for the harvest you're planning for you know what's coming up with the weather and, and that helps the veteran to have a reason for the next day, the next week, the next month. Veteran and beekeeper Mark Webb with Beck Witham. And if you missed the story on Landline on ABC Television yesterday, you can catch it on iView. Five to one. The Department of Primary Industries has taken to virtual reality to try and get young workers interested in a career in agriculture. Deeperd staff were out and about at the Albany show on the weekend with VR headsets, showing off a range of primary industries and food processing jobs in 360 degrees. The department's Nikki Polish says digital tools can really open your eyes to the full range of jobs on offer in primary industries. 
I think it just breaks some of the stereotypes or paradigms around what what a career might look like. So, yes, there are the hands-on careers that people traditionally associate with the primary industries, like um, you know being a farmer. But there's also right across the supply chain. So you can be anywhere from working in the labs, doing paddock research, right through to quality control at the food production end. Is there much to be said? for those digital strategies or those you know gamified strategies for getting people invested in an industry that they might not know much about well, I think it's it's part of the whole package. So no, you're not going to rely solely on that, but it might be um, we use them as a tool of engagement. So. Do you want to have a go at a VR headset and have a look? Yes, it's a great opportunity because I like tech and that might be why I stop and talk to you at this stall. But, you know, it's not it's not the big picture. So we, we talk to them then about how they can access different career decision tools like Career Harvest. There's some great online tools that profile different career sectors and help you decide what type of things you like doing and how that allows you to get into the primary industries. Deep Heard Food Industry Development Officer Nikki Paulish speaking to Angus McIntosh. Four to one to the markets and 2,695 head of cattle were booked in for today's sale at Muche, which is still underway. So numbers up about 500 on last week. John Testro is there. Has demand been strong again today, John? Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda. Terrific sale here today. Uh, quality improved in the younger section. And uh, the market dominated by parcel types again with over 75% uh, of the yarding uh, pen being parcels. But we'll run through some details quickly. Uh, in the parcel section, the Wiener Steers up by 30 cents, 265 to 540. Wiener Heifers also up 30 cents at uh, 280 to 470. Poor selection of yearling steers in the Wiener, uh, in the uh, parcel section at 328 to 460. They were down 30 but the yearling heifers were up by 50 cents at 3.15 to 400. Now the locals of the same types, the Wiener Steers, 4.60 to 6.70, up 30 cents. Wiener heifers, 4.85 to 6.10, up by 30 cents. Yearling Steers, down 10 at 4.62 to 5.42, and the yearling heifers, up by 50 cents at 400 to 4.30. In the grain steer section, the locals, 3.14 to 4.90, up by 50 cents. With the pastels back 30 cents on a poorer selection at 338 to 406. Grown heifers were up 10 at 360 to 400, and in the pastel section, 312 to 400. Pretty firm on those. The cow market, uh, haven't seen a lot of those sold yet, but uh, it's been very, very strong so far. Uh, cows to feeders, the light ones to feeders, 300 to 315, that's up 20 cents. And the score twos to um, uh, processors. 268 to 280, firm to 10 cents dearer with the prime heavy up by 15 cents, selling from 306 to 350 cents. Pretty good sale on the cows, and as I said, demand's very strong. And it continued in the bulls as well. Uh, live export, a uh, lot stronger today on the lightweights, 326 to 505, up 30 cents. Medium weight to live export, 342 to 396, up by 20. And heavy prime bulls followed the cow market. 280 to 344, up by 15 cents. Linda, it's uh, an incredible week for cattle this, uh, this week. We see two more sales at Boyd Up, being a wiener sale on Wednesday and a store sale on Friday. And you put that together with Mount Barker and also Boyd Up's fat sale tomorrow. We'll probably see over 8,000 cattle offered and sold uh, this week. So the demand keeps going strong and the cattle market just keeps improving. 
That's all from me for today, Belinda. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. John, thank you so much for that and just going through a little bit of a preview of what's ahead too with that sale at Mushay today still underway. On ABC WA, time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.